Two boys stood in the Prince Consort Gallery and looked down on a third. It was June the 19th, 1895. The Prince had died in 1861 and had seen only the beginnings of his ambitious project for a gathering of museums in which the British craftsmen could study the best examples of design. His portrait, modest and medalled, was done in mosaic in the tympanum of a decorative arch at one end of the narrow gallery which ran above the space of the South Court. The South Court was decorated with further mosaics, portraits of painters, sculptors, potters, the Kensington Valhalla. The third boy was squatting beside one of a series of imposing glass cases displaying gold and silver treasures. Tom, the younger of the two looking down, thought of Snow White in her glass coffin. He thought also, looking up at Albert, that the vessels and spoons and caskets, gleaming in the liquid light under the glass, were like a resurrected kingly burial hoard, which, indeed, some of them were. They could not see the other boy clearly, because he was on the far side of a case. He appeared to be sketching its contents. Julian Kane was at home in the South Kensington Museum, his father, Major Prosper Kane, was special keeper of precious metals. Julian was just fifteen and a boarder at Marlow School, but was home recovering from a nasty bout of jaundice. He was neither tall nor short, slightly built, with a sharp face and a sallow complexion, even without the jaundice. He wore his straight black hair parted in the centre and was dressed in a school suit. Tom Wellwood boyish in Norfolk jacket and breeches, was about two years younger, and looked younger than he was, with large dark eyes, a soft mouth, and a smooth head of dark gold hair. The two had not met before. Tom's mother was visiting Julian's father to ask for help with her research. She was a successful authoress of magical tales. Julian had been deputed to show Tom the treasures— he appeared to be more interested in showing him the squatting boy. I said I'd show you a mystery. I thought you meant one of the treasures. No, I meant him. There's something shifty about him. I've been keeping an eye on him. He's up to something. Tom was not sure whether this was the sort of make-believe his own family practised, tracking complete strangers and inventing stories about them. He wasn't sure if Julian was, so to speak, playing at being responsible. What does he do? He does the Indian rope trick. He disappears. Now you see him, now you don't. He's here every day, all by himself, but you can't see where or when he goes. They sidled along the wrought iron gallery, which was hung with thick red velvet curtains. The third boy stayed where he was, drawing intently. Then he moved his position to see from another angle. He was hay-haired, shaggy and filthy. He had cut down workman's trousers with braces over a flannel shirt the colour of smoke, stained with soot. Julian said, We could go down and stalk him. There are all sorts of odd things about him. He looks very rough. He never seems to go anywhere but here. I've waited at the exit to see him leave and follow him, and he doesn't seem to leave. He seems to be a permanent fixture. The boy looked up, briefly, his grimy face creased in a frown. Tom said, He concentrates. He never talks to anyone that I can see. 
Now and then the art students look at his drawings, but he doesn't chat to them. He just creeps about the place. It's sinister. Do you get many robberies? My father always says that keepers are criminally casual with the keys to the cases, and there are heaps and heaps of stuff lying around waiting to be catalogued or sent to Bethnal Green. It would be terribly easy to sneak off with things. I don't even know if anyone would notice if you did. Not with some of the things, though they'd notice quickly enough if anyone made an attempt on the candlestick. Candlestick? The Gloucester candlestick. What he seems to be drawing a lot of the time. The lump of gold in the centre of that case. It's ancient and unique. I'll show it to you. We could go down and go up to it and disturb him. Tom was dubious about this. There was something tense about the third boy, a tough, prepared energy he didn't even realise he'd noticed. However, he agreed. He usually agreed to things. They moved, sleuth-like, from ambush to ambush behind the swags of velvet. They went under Prince Albert, out onto the turning stone stairs, down to the south court. When they reached the candlestick, the dirty boy was not there. He wasn't on the stairs, said Julian, obsessed. Tom stopped to stare at the candlestick. It was dully gold. It seemed heavy. It stood on three feet, each of which was a long-eared dragon, grasping a bone with grim claws, gnawing with sharp teeth. The rim of the spiked cup that held the candle was also supported by open-jawed dragons with wings and snaking tails, the whole of its thick stem was wrought of fantastic foliage, amongst which men and monsters, centaurs and monkeys, writhed, grinned, grimaced, grasped and stabbed at each other. A helmeted gnome-like being, with huge eyes, grappled the sinuous tail of a reptile. There were other human or kobold figures, one in particular with long, draggling hair and a mournful gaze. Tom thought immediately that his mother would need to see it. He tried, and failed, to memorise the shapes. Julian explained. It had an interesting history, he said. No one knew exactly what it was made of. It was some kind of gilt alloy. It was probable that it had been made in Canterbury, modelled in wax and cast. But apart from the symbols of the evangelists on the knob, it appeared not to be made for a religious use. It had turned up in the cathedral in Le Mans, from where it had disappeared during the French Revolution. A French antiquary had sold it to the Russian prince Soltikov. The South Kensington Museum had acquired it from his collection in 1861. There was nothing anywhere like it.